You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Massimo, it's good to see you again. Hey, nice seeing you, man. Um, welcome to everyone in the Sofia audience. Um, I feel like it's been a while since we did our last one. Um, so in case people have forgotten who we are, <laughs> uh, why, don't we, why don't we do our introductions? Massimo, why don't you go introduce yourself first? I'm Massimo Pigliucci. I am the KD Irani Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York. And I'm Daniel Kaufman. I'm a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University. Um, Massimo, something that's come up a lot in the background of a number of our conversations has been the distinction between ancient and modern philosophy. Right. And I kept saying we should do one on it, and now we are. That's right. <laughs> um, and so... I figured, you know, maybe we talk a little bit first generally, and then we would spend the bulk of our time talking about ethics because that's the area that probably will interest a lot of people the most. It's the area that one of the areas that interests us, us a lot. Is there? Do you think there actually is a sort of a, a general characterization of the difference between ancient and modern philosophy, or do you think you really have to go subject area by subject area? That's a good question. I, I think there's a couple of different ways to answer that. So first of all, there clearly is a difference between contemporary philosophy as it is practiced in the academic world and pretty much anything that came before it, not just ancient philosophy, but you know, medieval philosophy and even early modern philosophy. And what would, that, what would you say that is? Well, so, so the, the main route for that, I think it's not, it's not just uh, uh, specific to philosophy, it's that in general, the academy throughout the 20th century, and particularly after World War II, has become increasingly specialized. Uh, and so, uh, or almost inevitably, what you have is that, you know, nowadays to get a PhD and then a position as a, a professor at a university, again, in any field, not just, uh, not just philosophy, you have to be very specialized, very technical, very narrow, because, of course, otherwise you're not going to be able to say, you know, anything that is really new is you're going to be mostly doing commentary and, or, or rehashing other th things that, that, that people had already done. So in that sense, there certainly is a, a, a dramatic difference, I think, uh, between contemporary philosophy and anything earlier on. That's not, that's not quite what we're talking about today, right? So, so the, the question is whether there is a difference between ancient philosophy as it was done in, in, in Greece and Rome, let's say, and pretty much anything that came after uh, afterwards, especially after the Middle Ages, especially after the Scholasticism, I guess. That's th those would be the two reference points. So, the ancient philosophy versus sort of modern, but not, not necessarily contemporary philosophy, um, or not only contemporary philosophy. I still do think there's a difference there. Uh, I was just reading an, uh, an interesting uh, book this morning before we started this conversation uh, that was making a the point that ancient philosophy wasn't just in a, in a question of inquiry or, you know, asking questions about whatever topic like ethics uh, or, or metaphysics or, or what, what, you ha what have you. It was really a way of life. That is, to be a philosopher was to do a particular, a particular to, to, to go through life in a particular way. Uh, it, it was part inquiry, part almost psychotherapy, uh, part counseling, part, uh, you know, spiritual quest, whatever you want to call it. So, so think of Socrates, right, as the quintessential example of that. 
Um, I mean, the guy basically almost full time uh, was was going around questioning people and getting uh, a sense of what people were were uh, were thinking and trying to teach them a sort of a better way to think. You you would definitely not see a philosopher doing that today. Right. And in fact, I don't think even modern philosophers, you know, people like Kant or Hume or or Mill or any 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 of that of that group would actually do philosophy in that way. They were already moving toward a more professionalized, more more sort of pre-academic, in the modern sense, type of philosophy. Let me ask you just on this. This is all is very interesting. Um, would you even also include that in the in, in the ancient sense, philosophy even covered elements of what we would today call religion. Um, um, and certainly the philosophers, one of the things that distinguished them, they were different, for example, from the common religions of their times. I mean, when Aristotle talks about God and the metaphysics, he's not talking about Zeus, right? Right. Um, um, so would you even say that there's even, that the, that the philosophers represented almost sort of a culture within the culture of ancient Greece and was distinguished from that culture in a whole bunch of different ways, that they're... they're, they're their view of life and of the world and even of the cosmos was different from that of the tragedians and that of the of the religious communities and and and, and so forth. That's right. So it was a, to use a modern term was a, a form of life that was different, uh, although of course overlapping and you know and, and with fuzzy boundaries or whatever whatever you want uh, from certainly from the religious approach. Uh, and I think this, you know, that's still true today. I mean, that I do think that there is a difference, and yet some overlap between philosophy and religion. Um, but today, again, we're talking about very distinct, much more distinct areas because philosophy essentially has gone academic. Religion, you know, not really. It's it's still a sort of mainstream thing that you know that that everybody does, not just sort of specialists, not just priests and preachers, right? Um, while at the, at the, at, in, in ancient Greece and Rome, to be a philosopher was really, uh, you know, something equivalent or alternative to being a priest or being, uh, a, a, you know, a person that people would go to for advice and for guidance and so on and so forth. Right. Uh, so so right. that, I think, makes a major difference. It's a major difference between the way the ancients did philosophy and what we today, could, uh, you know, uh, understand by that term. So, so you know, just to sort of, uh, so you know, viewers obviously are, are going to be familiar with the, the the stoicism that you've been doing um, because we've talked about it quite a bit. Um, and um, and I actually, I'm not meaning to say that this is the same sort of thing. I'm, on, but 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 a same type of thing. When I, someone like Peter Singer, um, mm. in a sense, there are people today who are in a sense trying again to live philosophies. That's why you sort of. You sort of resist the notion that Stoicism is for you kind of an alternative for religion, um, yeah. because yes, the traditional ancient philosophies did do some things that are like what religions do, but they were always distinct from the religions, like the Dionysian cults or any of the others. Correct. And so, would you say that today, more and more philosophers, people as different as people like you and Peter Singer, are trying more to recapture some of the ancient notion of a philosophy as something that's lived? I think that that's true. I don't know that there's more and more of us. Uh, you know, it's hard to quantify. I don't, I don't think it's a lot of people. But certainly Peter uh, qualifies. Certainly I consider myself increasingly in that, in, in, uh, you know, working in that direction. I mean, at this point, the majority of what I do has to do with outreach and with living my philosophy as opposed to sort of publishing technical papers. I mean, I still write. You know, I was writing a couple of uh, technical papers this past week, for instance. Um, 
So I still do that. I still take my academic job seriously, but I, it increasingly is a small part of what I mean by doing philosophy. And in fact, the, my, my outreach components, of, of which, of course, these conversations with you are, are one, one aspect of, um, it's itself, it's only part of what I'm doing. Now I'm really trying to sort of live a particular, you know, develop a uh, philosophy that I can live with every day uh, that guides my own life every day and therefore sort of in, in some sense reflects also on other people. I think Peter certainly has done the same. I think there are a number of non-academic philosophers who have gone in similar directions. I mean, I'm thinking uh, Julian Baggini, the, 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 the guy who started uh, originally the Philosopher's Magazine and who is now one of the successful examples of sort of independent philosophers, essentially. He just spends his, his time talking to audiences and, and exploring his own ways of, of going through uh, through life by, by developing his own philosophy. Um, another one is Nigel Warburton, who is yeah. the, uh, the guy that produces, the, among other things, the Philosophy Bites podcast, which is an incredibly successful enterprise. It's got more than 30 million downloads. Uh, you know, so those are people who do full-time philosophy, and they, they clearly don't do academic philosophy. Yeah. Uh, now, to the extent to which they actually live their life philosophically, uh, you know, one has to know exactly in the details of their lives to, 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 to uh, judge that. I know both of those that I just mentioned, and it seems to me that they do, in some sense, maybe less explicitly than I do with my stoicism, and certainly less explicitly than Peter Singer does with his uh, sort of uh, consequentialism and, and, and vegetarianism and activism and so on and so forth. But there's a number of people. I mean, uh, even, you know, academics like Anthony Appiah, for instance. Um, uh, so I think there is, or, or Martin Nassbaum, yeah. I think there is a number of people there who are really professional philosophers who are really redeveloping a broader conception of what philosophy means. And, and I think that's a welcome development. Well, yeah, one last thing along these lines, um, and then we'll get to the, the specific issues because this is actually really very interesting and I think important. Um, I mean, I know that for you, the Stoicism was, was to a great extent a pers personal, um, but is there also an element, uh, there has been increasingly lately, and maybe this is probably not coincidental to philosophies increasingly harder fortunes as with the general humanities harder fortunes within the academy um, is this in part because you too like many others are at least somewhat dissatisfied if not critical with what has become very disciplinary philosophy in other words I'm wondering if you almost think that maybe we made a mistake in becoming exclusively an academic discipline um, and that maybe, and that maybe we need to reverse this for philosophy's sake, not just for our own. In the sense of, you know, it's good for your life, but maybe it's also good for philosophy's fortunes if it's more and more perceived in the ancient way than in the way it has become perceived now. Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, the, I completely agree, in fact. But the, the the only caveat that I would add is that I don't think that's a problem specific for philosophy. It's more evident in philosophy because it it did start out that way as a way of life, and it has become hyper-specialized in the, in the modern world. But I don't think it's very different from, from science. I mean, science also used to be a way of life, meaning that, you know, people like uh, Descartes, who, of course, was also a philosopher, but he, he thought of himself as a, as a physicist, or Galileo, um, you know, they, they really lived their quest for general understanding in a way that I think is very different from a modern hyper-specialized scientist uh, who has to compete for grants and things like that. In fact, ironically, one of the reasons that, that uh, pushed me from science uh, to philosophy was precisely the fact that the rat race in science uh, uh, was getting so uh, 
stressful and so continuous that you know I had to I was running a lab in, in you know a biology lab for many years and and I was actually successful in terms of funding I mean I can't complain I got uh, continuous funding from the National Science Foundation but I, w- I got to the point where I would have to spend a significant amount of my time not even doing research which would have been already a specialized thing to do but actually writing the research and so it felt like wait a minute why well, I, I didn't get into science because of this that's that's not what I wanted to do I, I had this broad curiosity about the world I wanted to pursue general broad questions about the world but modern science does not allow you to do that uh, it just doesn't work that way uh, be, again because of the upper specialization of the academy so I don't think it's just for uh, in philosophy but yes absolutely uh, Trying to get back outside of the, the, the ivory tower at least for some time uh, and try to also practice philosophy as a, as a personal um, way of you know, improving your own life, it's actually going to be good for philosophy as well. I think yeah. it's going to make it more relevant to people. And yeah, it, so- it sounds to me like you're almost saying that the disciplinization of all intellectual life has been not such a great thing. Um, yeah. Um, um, and... Um, um, you know, it's 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 not it's not you know people it's people sometimes don't realize that people like things like David Hume's essays and and Rousseau and others were actually read by popular audiences. Now, of course, right. the popular audiences there were a very narrow sliver of the population, and part sure. of maybe what's happened now is that you know, within a sense, the democratization of society, these things have become pigeonholed in a kind of a in a, in a disciplinary way, but um, you know. Uh, I think someone like Thomas Dewey might have said that we made a fundamental mistake in not, in a right. sense, expanding the intellectual world to meet the needs of democratization rather than pigeonholing it into one segment of, of the society. Um, because what it sounds yeah. like you're saying is that this isn't just the humanities, this is everything that's become right. disciplinized and thus taken away from the public in a way right. that... That's right. Yeah. I mean, the, the same applies to uh, you know hist- historians or or to literature and, you know, literary criticism, poetry and all that sort of stuff. I mean, now a lot of the authors, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, a lot of people that actually write literature are in fact academics that can That's afford right. to do it, right? Because because they have, a, you know, a basic salary coming in from the academia. I mean, that's that goes for, for myself as well, right? And one of the reasons I can afford to do all, those, all these things is because I have a salary, I have an income that is stable coming from the university. So... In some sense, this is not necessarily that bad if you actually take conscience of what, what it is that, that's happening here. So, in other words, if, in fact, we use the academy and tenure, particularly tenure, although it is, of course, as you know, currently under attack by many, many quarters. But if we use the idea of the academy and tenure, and tenure as a safe harbor for intellectuals that can be used to then get back outside and provide, you know, these, these broader intellectual service to the community, I actually think that would be a good development. Yeah, the I problem agree. is that uh, the academy has bought into these, increasingly into these market-driven uh, sort of uh, ideology, essentially, uh, whereby, you know, uh, my administrators count as many, you know, count the, the number of papers, no matter where they're published, and no yeah. matter how irrelevant they may be, uh, no matter the fact that most of 
technical papers are probably read by a few dozen people in the world. And so I make no input. I have no input whatsoever. Yeah. But, you know, there are numbers that they can count. And, and that's the basis on which the, the thing actually works. So I think we can still take it back. And I think we are, in fact, taking it back. Uh, I see new generations of graduate students in philosophy, for instance, and, ju and junior faculty who are more and more into doing out the public outreach and doing uh, uh, you know, podcasts and, and blogs and things like that. So it may, it may, it may change. But yeah. Uh, but yes, there's been a definitely, at the very least, a mixed blessing. This 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 uh, increased specialization of all academic fields has been a mixed blessing at best. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. So let's get um, let's get to some of the details. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about uh, in setting things up so that we kind of get to the ethics is in the in a at a general level. The ancient Greeks had a very different conception, and, a, and I would say a much broader conception, of explanation, generally speaking, in whatever right. subject area you're talking about, than the moderns did. And maybe you could talk a little bit about what the difference was, and maybe a little bit about why you think it changed, and if you agree with me that it narrowed, why it narrowed. Uh, I do think it narrowed. Um, it's... You know, I can only provide a sort of a general scenario. It would be, it'd be uh, that that would be probably a field. Of, I mean, yeah, that's an entire yeah, but, right. Just give right. us a sketch but, of what you think. But the basic sketch, I think, is that uh, that that initially, that early on, there was no distinction between what we today call philosophy uh, uh, and and some of its branches like metaphysics, aesthetics, you know, uh, and even ethics for that matter, and the natural sciences. You know, natural philosophy was part and parcel of what a philosopher would do. Now, it's true that different philosophers had different emphasis. You know, Socrates famously turned away from, for instance, from natural philosophy and more to, uh, largely to ethics, essentially. But, uh, but even if you take some of the later Roman philosophies like Seneca, uh, since we were talking about the Stoics before, you know, Seneca was mostly doing ethics, but he also wrote about natural phenomena. He wrote about comets and, you know, and eclipses and right. things like that. And Lucretius was an Epicurean and wrote this whole thing about right. the world, right? The nature of the right. world. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Now, so what happened, of course, with the scientific revolution uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries is that slowly natural philosophy became science. Um, as we think we, we said in, uh, earlier in, in earlier conversations, the, the, the term scientist did not really exist until uh, early 19th century. Uh, it was introduced by William Wheel, who was one of Darwin's um, mentors, and he was a philosopher interested in epistemology uh, and, and, and in what we today would call philosophy of science, even though, of course, at the time, the field did not exist uh, in its own right. So it, it, it was a slow process of, you know, so like two or three hundred years, uh, during which uh, philosophy sort of spun off uh, the sciences as we understand them today. Once that was done, I think that our concept of explanation changed. Um, it became much less organic, much less comprehensive, and much more narrowly scientific. If, if, if something doesn't fit the parameters of uh, scientific explanations, it's not considered an explanation. Massimo, it's good to see you again. Uh, our audience will notice that we are in different clothes. I assure you we have, we have washed in between. Um, <laughs> And in different locations, we yep. had some technical difficulties. Uh, apparently, the uh, Wi-Fi at the Graduate Center is not much better than the Wi-Fi at the Port Authority, where you used to <laughs> film. <laughs> and so we're trying it again from your home with your fantastic mural in the background. Yes, exactly. We've got a nice view in New York. That's so. right. Um, 
And so let me just uh, catch us up. So we were talking, we, we, we left off last time um, talking about the difference between the ancient Greek and the modern, and by modern we mean um, the philosophy, uh, the thought of the Enlightenment, um, notion of, concept of explanation. And, and, and we were talking about how the, con the conception of what it is to give an explanation of something narrowed once you get to the modern era. It had been broader in ancient Greece. And um, you had just finished saying that it's actually gotten worse in the 20th century because now you have people who are saying that the only real explanations are explanations in physics right. um, as part of a more general sort of reductionist attitude towards uh, 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 the sciences. Um, I was going to ask you maybe to talk a little more specifically um, Aristotle famously thought that there were four causes, that right. is, four uh, perspectives from which to explain a thing or a phenomenon, and that one had not fully explained a thing or a phenomenon unless one had given all four, and that this narrowed, uh, in, that this specific conception of four causes narrowed in a specific way in the modern era, and I thought maybe you would speak a little bit to that. Right. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up Aristotle because, of course, we, do, we know him today as one of the most influential philosophers of all time. Uh, but he was also doing what can be fairly be considered as you know, natural philosophy and therefore, by today's standards, science. You know, he spent a lot of time in the field observing animals and, and, and animal behaviors and structures and things like that. And he wrote about subject matters that have essentially to do with biology and you know, physics and so on and so forth. Um, so now you mentioned the four causes. Uh, so, so Aristotle famously thought that there were sort of four levels of explanations or four different kinds of explanation that you could give of a given phenomenon. Uh, those were the material, the formal, the efficient, and the final cause. And you know, the way to remember this is, is by using one of the classical examples. So if let's, let's say that we're looking at a statue of, uh, let's say, Socrates uh, that has been commissioned uh, for the city of Athens, right? So if you ask, well, what, what is the statue? What, what explains that statue? What, why, is it, why is it there? Why am I looking at this thing? For Aristotle, there were these four levels of explanation. So first of all, you got the material explanation. You know, what, what is the statue made of? For instance, marble, as opposed to some other material, you know, bronze or something like that. Um, there's the formal explanation. Uh, you know, what's the subject of, of the statue? It's, it's Socrates. It's a philosopher, as opposed to being, you know, Pericles, a politician, or or an athlete, or something like that. Uh, the efficient cause is uh, is the sculptor, is that the person that actually put it, the artist that actually you know got the this, this, this statue from a formless uh, you know piece of marble to an actual you know representation of, of likeness of Socrates. And then you got the final cause, which is you know uh, essentially why do we have this thing? Well, we have this thing because the city of Athens decided to. After killing him, decided to <laughs> uh, to honor Socrates and, and with, with a statue. Now, we if you put it that way, we understand what Aristotle is talking about. We we say you know there's different aspects to the question of why is this statue there or how did that statue uh, uh, get to be to be there in the first place. Now, today I think in the special sciences. And, and in particular, and also, and also in sort of everyday discourse, we would actually go for something like Aristotle explanations, right? I mean, it, it would make perfect sense if I were walking down the street of Athens with you and, and we were pointing out to the statue, and you, you could ask similar questions. You might not call them the material cause, the formal cause, et cetera, et cetera. But you might say, hey, what is this statue made of? Or who is it, who is it representing? You know, that sort of stuff. 
But um, that, those wouldn't count today as scientific explanation of, of the statue, right? So, so what would be a scientific explanation of, of the statue? Well, you could explain it at a, at a somewhat high level in terms of sort of human psychology, uh, right? We, we want, uh, we have this need to, um, uh, to honor certain particular people that are, that are important in our lives or in other culture. Uh, but then you could go one level down, you could say, yes, but that in turn is the result of sort of basic biological uh, instincts that produce, you know, a, um, a tendency for, uh, you know, honoring people in fame and, and, and in general, because it, after all, it actually has something to do with reproduction genes and, you know, the next generation. And then you can go even further than and say, well, it's actually physics. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, our atoms and molecules move in a certain way that produces the statue, uh, because after all, the, the laws of physics are, are, are the way they are. I, I hope it's clear. I mean, this is a slight caricature, but only slight. I hope it's clear to our uh, viewers that to say that the statue is the result of the laws of physics explains nothing. Um, you know, it sounds good, and and it's, and at some trivial level, I think it's actually true. Yes, of course, we're all made of, of atoms and molecules, including the damn statue. So yes, it, at bottom, uh, it's it's all movements of of uh, atoms and molecules in accordance with the laws of physics. But that explanation, such as it is, grossly underdetermines what we want to know. Yeah. Right. So if I bring up you know, quantum mechanics or general relativity or whatever, or even just uh, standard Newtonian mechanics, uh, you could presumably readily agree that, yes, having a statue of Socrates certainly doesn't violate any of those laws of physics. But I haven't given you any explanation at all of why we have that particular statue made of those particular materials done by a particular person in a particular place. Yeah. It just it gives you nothing. Yeah. So my concern about um, the difference between sort of the ancient conception of explanation and, and, and the more modern and, and, and scientific, I would say, almost con concept of explanation is that we're losing the, the, some, some richness in the concept of explanation itself. Yeah. That, you know, people increasingly say things like, well, ultimately that goes down to physics. Well, yes, it does, but in an entirely trivial and completely uninformative way, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, but now, I think you're right in, also, in, in saying that when we're talking about human activity and the product of human activity, it's still relatively natural to speak uh, of more than simply the material and the efficient causes. We certainly talk about purposes, uh, right. uh, uh, telos, when we talk about uh, human activity and the product of human activity. Um, but I gather that, at least historically, part of the reason for the narrowing of the concept of explanation, at least in the, in the natural sciences, was because of the abandonment of the idea that there's purpose in nature. In other words, for Aristotle, purpose didn't only explain human activity and the products of human activity, it explained everything in nature. Um, and once you get to the scientific revolution, one of the chief elements of which is the abandonment of the idea of purpose in nature. Um, purpose was no longer seen as a legitimate way of explaining natural phenomena. Um, and that was the reason for the narrowing um, of, of, and because form, and I, please tell me if you think I'm right about this or, or, or if you think there's another reason, 
because form is defined in relation partly to purpose, right. formal explanation also went by the wayside in the natural sciences during the, the mechanical revolution in physics in, 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 in the 17th and 18th centuries. Is that roughly correct, you think? I think that's, I think that's correct. That process arguably started with, with Descartes, uh, probably, or at least he, he was one of the pivotal uh, points, and it certainly did continue with Galileo and Newton, uh, even though, of course, Newton actually thought that what physics was doing was actually confirming and discovering the laws of nature put in place by God. So he actually did retain. Uh, up to Newton, we still have the retention of, of some kind of uh, teleology, really. Um, but after that, it just went out the window with physics. You know, physics uh, after Newton basically is, uh, you're right, it just got rid of that concept. Now, however, here's interesting. In the way in which I presented uh, this, uh, the things, you know, the, the, for the, the, the modern version, let's say, uh, of the Aristotelian causes, you know, I said that in, in regular discourse, in, in, in regular parlance, uh, people would still understand what we mean by, in, by those different questions or those different aspects of explanation. I think that uh, those are also uh, reflective of the distinction between a scientific attitude that sees, that sees physics as fundamental and paramount to all of the other sciences as on the one hand, as opposed to a model of uh, plurality in the sciences where the special sciences retain a significant degree of independence, right? I and mean, we talked in the past about Jerry Photo's famous... Yeah. Uh, the autonomy uh, of, the, of the various science, the relative autonomy of the various sciences, right. at least explanatorily, if right. not ontologically and metaphysically. That is, we all, most of us are agree that ultimately everything is made of... Um, uh, matter, or whatever matter is made of, right? Um, exactly. But we're talking about um, explanatory autonomy, meaning that if you want to understand certain things, going to much lower levels may not tell you much by way that's explanatory, right? right. It, it actually gets positively in the way, I think, of, yeah. of getting good explanations. Um, so now I mentioned this because uh, of what you just brought up about you know the sort of the historical process of losing certain kinds of explanations in the sciences. I think that's true for physics, but think about it this way. So you know, yes, in physics, teleology went out of the way, uh, you know, went out of fashion, and that's one of the things that contributed to narrow down, narrowing down the concept of explanation. But then we get the the. Uh, origin of the special sciences. I mean, biology became... The revolution in biology in the 19th century, yeah. yeah. Right, yeah. so biology became independent uh, of philosophy only in the 19th century, so significantly later than physics, and then psychology even later than that, you know, the late late 19th, uh, early, early 20th century, basically. And now, with Darwin, for instance, we actually have a... Um, uh, a coming back of, for instance, final explanations. You know, Purpose, purpose, yeah, yeah. It's just that it's redefined. It's that, so so it makes perfect sense for a biologist, for instance, to say, well, what is the I for? Right. Which is a classic final question in terms of, you know, final cause type of question in terms of Aristotelian logic. Uh, it, it makes perfect sense for a biologist answer that question in language that sounds very much teleological. It's like, oh, well, it's... The, the eye is there because it has a particular function, and it is that function that explains the structure, that is, that explains the formal aspect right. of, of the eye. So, in fact, I, a, a number of years ago, we, we may link it to, um, to the website when, when this conversation comes out. A number of years ago, actually, I wrote a paper, technical paper, 
uh, in a biology journal about the application, uh, the applicability of Aristotelian causes to modern biology. I've read that paper because it was on it was on your site. Yeah, I think I think it's on one of your. Yeah, that's yeah. very good. Yeah. So so I think that actually we do have, and then then with psychology. So what I'm saying is, so evolutionary biology or biology more generally uh, brought back the final cause. It just redefined it. it it's a, it, it, you know, it's not the result of some kind of telos at the cosmic level. It's the result of process, natural processes such as natural selection. Right, right. It doesn't have to be part of a grander purpose, right. it, but it's purpose at a sort of more local, not local, but at, at, at a, it's purpose that goes down to a certain level of explanation and not any further. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Correct. And then psychology, of course, is about teleology in, right. in, in, in yet another sense. You know, there's human teleology. I mean, humans do things for a purpose. For a purpose. That there are reasons behind the, the stuff that we do. And uh, so that's another way to recast, you know, the final cause. You know, so why, um, why did this thing happen? Why did these people do this particular action? Well, it's not just because they're made of molecules and atoms. It's that there's, there are some higher level explanations in terms of motivations, in terms of psychological drives. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so all of that actually is. So I think that that the, the picture that emerges from this is a little complicated because we have Aristotle with a plurality of you know of explanations or levels of explanations or types of explanations. And then we have the narrow it down in physics of those explanations to basically one you know mechanistic uh, kind of explanation. But then you have sort of the re-emerging. Re a reemergence of a plurality of explanations in the special sciences, and so the current situation is: it depends on how you see the relationships between physics and the special sciences. If you really think that even at the level of explanation, forget ontology, but at the level of explanation, in fact, indeed, it is desirable at some point to go down all the way to physics, then you certainly have lost the Aristotelian. Uh, you know, variety of, of, of causes. But if you reject that, if you are like Fodor and frankly like myself, and if you say, no, well, that's crazy, that's, that doesn't get you any, anywhere, there's always one or two proper levels, you know, two or three proper levels of explanations, and they usually are, you know, and they need to be picked appropriately for the kind of questions you have, then in fact you are actually maintaining a plurality of, of uh, the concept of, of explanation, just not exactly the, the Aristotelian one, but it's not really that different. I mean, we still recognize something right. that is Aristotle. Right. And yeah, no, it's really fascinating. And actually, you know, so really this, the, the true picture is our conception of explanation was at its narrowest during the first scientific revolution. That's right. Um, um, and that's because this was prior to the development of the special sciences as sciences. Um, exactly. And so... In many ways, the people today, people who we might call eliminative materialists or very hard reductionists, are really trying to go back to the picture of explanation that we had in the that we had in the, in the first scientific revolution. That's right. Um, um, would you say that you think a, a way we might define the special sciences is precisely that the special sciences that, that the special sciences can be defined in terms of teleological explanations? And that that's a way of distinguishing the special sciences from uh, the physical sciences. And that is, um, the physical sciences do not require teleological explanations in order to uh, uh, produce the knowledge that they produce. And the special that's sciences do. Yeah, that's an interesting suggestion. That clearly applies well to both biology and uh, psychology. And you know, the social sciences in general. Yeah, yeah. Economics, sociology, and so on and so forth. I'm not so sure about things like geology, for instance. How would, how would but, geology, but those, I mean... Those are are those special sciences in the set? I mean, those are 
ultimately reducible, more easily reducible to physics, are they not? Perhaps. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, chemistry certainly is. Even though, in fact, there's, there are philosophers of, chemi of chemistry who argue that uh, a lot of people sort of take for granted that chemistry has been reduced to physics, and in fact, it hasn't. It has not actually been reduced. It hasn't actually been reduced. We don't see the kind of glaring problems with the, for the prospects right. of reduction that we would see with biology. Let me just ask you one last thing about this his historical issue, and then we'll move on to ethics. Um, um, at the time when Darwin, when the revolution of biology happened, was there kind of a philosophy of science conversation going on about how we are bringing teleological explanation back to the natural sciences, or is this something that we only recognize in hindsight? No, very, and was, very did it cause a fight at the time? Yeah, very much there was, and there was a fight. Uh, I, I don't think it was put exactly in those terms, but there was a big fight between uh, William Hewell, who was one of Darwin's mentors, actually, and the, the guy, incidentally, that invented the word scientist, uh, in, a, in, in analogy to artists, of all things, uh, is that, you know, there are these people out there that do these things, let's call them scientists. And, um, you know, and Will is also the guy that put on the map the idea of inference of the best explanation, hmm. right? So um, as, as a particular type of induction, if you want to think of it that way. Now, Will was involved throughout most of his life with, in, in a bitter dispute in, uh, with John Stuart Mill about the nature of induction. Mm. And, and about the nature of scientific reasoning. And one of the interesting things is that Ewell was very critical of Darwin uh, and thought that Darwin wasn't actually doing science at all. Because uh, the explanations were teleological? That's right. Precisely because they're teleological. And basically saying, you know, you're just making up a story about this stuff, but you're not following you know, scientific methodology in terms of, in, of, of induction. And Darwin was very much taken aback by this because, he, he, as I said, he was a, a, one of Will's students and he very much wanted to, his mentor to be on his side, essentially. And, uh, and at some point, uh, Darwin wrote this uh, really frustrated letter to one of his friends where he said, uh, look, uh, people, it, it, he said, it's hard to me to imagine why people don't, don't seem to understand that, that any um, hypothesis and any, any theory has to be uh, put forth, the theories have to be forth, so general explanations have to be forth in order to, to make sense of data, that there is an interaction between data and theory, that you can't just do induction, uh, you know, they can't just generalize for things. And in fact, he said, uh, look, what I'm doing is actually induction, is, is induction, is, is the, the origin of species was one case after another to right. build an inductive argument, essentially, what he called uh, famously a long, one long argument in favor of the conclusion of natural selection as an explanation for evolution. So there was a, dis a discussion involving the nature of induction, the value of teleology in biology. After all, remember that one of the chapters of the origin of species was a uh, response to William Paley, uh, the famous uh, natural theologian who put forth the most formal version of the argument from design, right? And talk about teleology. That's right. Darwin was in a very strange position that he had on the one hand to uh, sort of respond to Paley and say, no, no, that teleology in that sense isn't going to work. There is, there is no intelligent designer that put right. things on earth. But at the same time, uh, there is another version of teleology. There's not a purely mechanistic account that can be given exactly. of this. Right, right. That's really interesting. And this is history I think a lot of people don't know. Um, um, and, and in a sense, the, the criticism is that the million sort of inductivism was too crude. Um, 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 yes. Yeah. 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 Almost. It's almost like an enumerative inductivism that that's that that yeah that you really couldn't do advanced science with. Right. right? 
Yeah. But I want to be I want to be clear. So so one of the things is uh, the reason Darwin is so frustrated is because he actually saw his research or his, his work as supporting Buell against Mill. Because Mill was, in fact, more of a purist uh, in, in this sense, and he was essentially talking about enumerative induction, right? So, so you look at a certain number of instances, and then you generalize from those instances. Right. Um, Buell's concept of in, in inference to the best explanation, which today actually uh, uh, philosophers refer to as abduction, and it, they actually think it's not even induction. <laughs> if it is a, a type of induction, it's of a different kind of type, right. the enumerative one. So the word often uses abduction, which is kind of a weird word because, to my mind, it brings up you know alien. Uh, <laughs> and I have not people. even thought. I never even thought of that until you just said it. <laughs> but anyway, so it, it brings up anal probing and you know things like that. Um, you said that, not me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in fact, abduction in that sense, or is it sense of inference with that explanation? Darwin thought is exactly what he was doing. Right? Yeah, you, you know, inference is the best explanation yeah. is, is sometimes uh, the way in which uh, it, uh, people uh, say uh, that the, the fictional character of Sherlock Holmes actually worked. Right. So I actually wrote a, an essay uh, about this for a collection called The Philosophy of Sherlock Holmes uh, a few years ago. Oh, that sounds was, like fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to put together. And one of the points was that, you know, uh, uh, Conan Doyle often has. Holmes saying that he uses the deductive method. It's not really deduction, though. No. It's got nothing to do with deduction. Right, right, right. What it is, is in fact inductive to the, induction to the best explanation. It's inference to the best explanation. Uh, what, it, what Holmes does is he collects clues, from, you know, disparate clues, that all point in the same direction in logical space, or, or at least they point into to one direction much more strongly than they point in other directions. And so you infer... You extrapolate from that that that's the direction where the answer is going to come from, and that's exactly what Darwin was doing. Yeah, yeah. So, so he was very frustrated that Will just didn't get that. In fact, Darwin's work was a perfect example of inference of the best explanation. <laughs> well, this is this is really terrific, and actually went in some directions I hadn't expected. I, really interesting. Um, let's turn. So, so, if we're keeping a scorecard, we'll say the ancients for the most part, had a better conception of explanation than the moderns, if by the moderns we mean the moderns of the scientific, the first scientific revolution, and right. that indeed a good portion of the scientific and the philosophical community have gone back to the ancient Greek notion of many causes, many levels of explanation, including the teleological and the formal, um, at least with regard to the special sciences, um, with fundamental physics remaining non-teleological. Right. Um, um, let's now talk about ethics, because that's what we wanted to spend the, the bulk of, uh, of our discussion on. And um, how would you characterize the shift from the ancient way of thinking about uh, ethics to the modern way of thinking about ethics? And by modern, we can mean both the Enlightenment uh, so which would mean, you know, Kant and Hume and Mill, and um, and we'll include Mill in that, and uh, and also the contemporary. How would you? How would you? If you were broadly, when you talk, talk, you teach your students, how do you broadly characterize the change that occurred? Well, when I teach my students, I need to use more neutral language than than, than the one that I'm going to use now, and and which I'm sure is going to be controversial. But I think that uh, ethics made two horrible turns uh, turns in the modern in modern time. First with Kant and then with Mill. Uh, that is, we went from a conception of ethics uh, that was very broad, and it was, you know, in the ancient world, ethics meant the study of how to live your life in a meaningful 
way and in, 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 a, in a pro-social way, in a way that you're uh, uh, proud of if you look back to it, that, that sort of stuff. Uh, a question to which there were a number of different answers, right? So each one of the Hellenistic schools gave a different answer. The Epicureans, the Stoics, uh, the Aristotelians, the Platonists, the skeptics, they all gave different, different answers to that sort of kind of broad question. And, and it was also a question that implied, well, in fact, it didn't imply, it's, it explicitly said that ethics is a practical matter, it's not just a theoretical exercise. We went from there to the rationalistic approach of Kant, who, uh, you know, to his credit, he was, he was the one that uh, put the ontology on a secular uh, basis as opposed to sort of, sort of religion, a religious basis. I mean, right, the ontological systems before Kant were things like the Ten Commandments and things like that, right? Uh, Kant, who was a very religious person, but he was, as you were saying, in the middle of the Enlightenment, uh, he thought that we ought to um, have something like a deontological system of ethics uh, but that that system couldn't be derived from scripture because, you know, some people believe, other don't believe. Some people believe one scripture, other believe other, other scripture. It has to be based on reason. And hence, hence his famous categorical imperative. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, we have Mill, uh, who follow up, following up on Bentham, uh, came up with what we today recognize as utilitarianism or sort of a general family, a broader family of consequentialist ethics. The problem uh, with, with those two moves, which for a, for a long while have represented pretty much all of the landscape of modern ethics, modern, modern moral theory, moral, moral philosophy. Until very recently, I would say. Until very recently, yeah. right. So we're, we're, we're going to get to what happened more recently. But, um, you know, for a long time, those were basically the only two games in town. And, you know, it's very well known that both have serious problems. And in fact, the interesting things to me is, as you know, a few months ago on my blog, Plato's uh, Footnotes to Plato, I published a, basically an entire book on, on, on the... Uh, yeah, we uh, did, three, we did three, di three dialogues on it. That's right. Yeah. We did a whole, a whole series on them. And, and at one point, I actually did discuss uh, this, this uh, utilitarianism as, uh, you know, in detail, because in fact, it is one of those examples, in my mind at least, where philosophers got better and better. You start with a certain idea and then you sort of modify it and implement it and you know, take into account criticism. For what happened during the last sort of century and, and, and then some is that the ontologists and utilitarianists uh, went at each other's throat, pointing out the defects and the problems with each other's system and each one trying to then sort of come up with counter-arguments and, and, and refinements of their position. I think that, however, what that exercise has showed pretty clearly is that neither uh, framework is particularly useful. It's particularly um, actually practically useful for, for uh, you know, there's all sorts of interesting theoretical discussions that the ontologists and utilitarians can get into. But as a matter of fact, I don't think that either one of those systems is a particularly useful to everyday life uh, kind of decisions, you know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna uh, simply implement some kind of version of the categorical imperative because it gets it gets into all sorts of practical situations where you would have, in fact, to violate um, uh, sort of a, a universal uh, rule in order to actually get uh, stuff done in, a, in in the right way. You know, the most obvious example is lying. The the the, the, the categorical imperative has essentially implies a, a universal prohibition against lying. lying. But there is, it's very easy, and people have done it, to come up with all sorts of examples where lying is actually a moral thing to do. Right. 
but uh, you know, uh, on the other side of the same of the same discussion, you know, uh, we're not going to go through life doing some kind of mental calculus of consequences of our actions for all sorts of reasons. First of all, because it's actually impossible to do. You know, yeah. we don't we just don't have enough knowledge. Yeah, and, Mill actually considers that objection in utilitarianism. Um, um, he does take that criticism seriously. Uh, whether whether we think his answer is good is a different story, but uh, that is a right. serious question. Yeah, right. But in, in, like, the interesting thing is, I think that I, that over the last century or so, uh, both of the, of those uh, philo both philosophers on, on both sides of the of that discussion have taken those those objections seriously, and they have come up with some kind of answers. I just don't happen to find them particularly uh, useful. But in fact, one of the things that happened is that uh, in so doing, they kind of come up often with a, some kind of a mixed system. You know, a utilitarianism that has a flavor of the ontology, right, like a rule utilitarianism, yeah, or, like utilitarianism. or even a, an attempt to synthesize the way Rawls does, tries to synthesize right. the two traditions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there is that, and you know, fine if you want to, if if you, if someone thinks that those are interesting uh, and and useful, uh, okay. But in my mind, those have been actually turns to the wrong in the wrong direction, mostly because they have narrowed down dramatically the very meaning of the word ethics. So talk about that a little bit. So, na so now ethics for most, uh, for most of us, not only philosophers, but, but sort of everyday life, ethics just means the study of, of right and wrong actions. You know, of morality, properly morality, speaking, right, right. right. Right in that sense, right? So is this action right or wrong? And uh, the, the difference between the two schools is, is whether you look at it in terms of intentions of the agent or in terms of consequences of the actions of the agent, right? Um, but I think that's a, a poor, and that's a narrow definition of ethics, and it's a much more poor uh, conception of ethics than the, what the ancients had. It's not now. One of the things that people often say is like, "Oh, but the ancients, you know." So, so if you go back to virtue ethics, uh, then what are you saying that intentions don't matter or consequences don't matter? Of course they do. Uh, Aristotle or, or the Stoics or the Epicureans would have readily said, yet no kidding. Surely both the intentions and the consequences, intentions of the agents and the consequences of the actions do matter, but they're not the crucial thing. They both are reflections of what they thought is the crucial thing, which is the character of the agent, right? the moral character of the agent. If you develop, so the focus is on moral character. If you develop your moral character, then you're more likely to have good intentions and within the limits of human knowledge, you are more likely to actually engage in actions that have positive consequences, right? Um, so I think that that... So what they get away from is the sort of the, 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 the rule or the rule picture of ethics. And yeah. In other words, rather than ethics being there to give us a series of, of rules that tell us do this and don't do that, what ethics really is about is developing the kind of person, personality, that's yeah. going to do good things, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. um, and we're good as more likely to do. That's yeah, right. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Now you were saying a minute ago that the situation has been changing again recently. So, and by recently, I mean the last few decades. Yes. So, in professional philosophy, in professional moral philosophy, there's been a resurgence of virtue ethics brought right. about by a number of people, like Philippa Foote and, and you know McIntyre and Michael Sloat and and uh, right. uh, uh, Roger Crisp and and yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, a number of people over the last several decades have, have sort of looked at uh, virtue ethics and, and come up with a number of you know 
new versions of it, you know, some kind of, often this is referred to as neo Aristotelianism, although Aristotelianism is actually not the only game in town. Yeah, it's just, for, I think that, I think that's just for the sake of a name and it's the most identifiable yeah. virtue ethics because the right. Nicomachean ethics is probably the most famous. Right. Uh, yeah. But we've yeah. done episodes on Stoicism, so our, yeah. Our, yeah. our viewers know that that's a, that's a, also a, car, a type of virtue ethics and it's, that's yeah. actually different from Aristotelianism. Yeah. But the point is that even in, even within moral philosophy, actually, things are being sort of change, expanding back. At least now, virtue ethics is, again, a well-established alternative framework. It's a real yeah. player. It's not just a fringe activity. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, there's a, a paper uh, that, uh, uh, that we should link to. Uh, co-authored by David Chalmers that came out a, a year or two ago uh, about sort of a, it's, a, it's essentially a statistical survey of professional philosophers' opinions on a number of issues in technical professional philosophy. And when it comes to questions of ethics, uh, surprisingly, I think, it turns out that virtual ethics is the preferred framework of almost a third of uh, professional philosophers. That is a surprise to me. I didn't realize it had gotten that much traction. Right, hmm. right. So the, still today, I think the most uh, popular one is is some kind of, it's deontology followed immediately after by consequentialism. And then there's virtue ethics, but it's only a few points behind. Not that this is, a, uh, a, of course, a, a, you know, a competition in terms of... No, but it's interesting to see that it's had that much of a resurgence, that it's... Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So let me let me do something which I normally don't do, um, and that's defend uh, the narrowing, just to sort of push the <laughs> push this a little bit. So, for, for, let me say a few things. First of all, um, one reason for the narrowing, entirely non-philosophical, and that has to do with the evolution of uh, larger scale societies. When you live in a relatively uh, homogeneous small society um, one can rely upon general agreement as to basic conceptions of the good right um, so you can rely in, in, in ancient in an ancient Greek city-state that people are going to roughly share a basic conception of the good what 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 the virtues are so to speak um, in a larger more pluralistic, more heterogeneous society, that becomes less and less likely. And so you begin to develop a picture of morality that is more akin to that of the law. Right? Yes, um, sure. So that's one reason why you might deliberately narrow your, your ethics, and that is because you can no longer rely upon shared common assumptions about basic matters of value uh, which means basic uh, notions of virtue. That's one reason. The second reason, and this is going to bring back something that we that we just talked about in the, in the in the context of science, is that a virtue ethic of the sort that you have in ancient Greece relies upon a conception of the human purpose, right? Sure. That is of 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 there being a now. We have no problem talking about human purposes at the level of the individual. I have so, all sorts of purposes in my right. life. You have all sorts of purposes in your life. But to have a common notion of what a virtue is, that is what it means to flourish, not just as me or you, but as a human being, so right. that we can come up with some sort of general account, requires a teleological view of human nature. And yeah. um, even though biology retains a teleological picture, uh, conception of explanation, it does not retain the, the, the richer teleology of human nature that you find in ancient Greece. Yeah, you're right. Right. And, and, so, and so I guess I want to ask you, um, 
What do you think about those two? Uh, and with respect to the latter, how do you recover a virtue ethic in the contemporary framework without appealing to a notion of uh, a purposeful human nature? Right. No, those, those are excellent questions. And, uh, and I'm sure there is, in fact, quite a bit right about what you said. But I'm going to sort of try to push back on yeah, them yeah. in two or three different ways. So, first of all, we don't need, in order to recover a virtual ethical framework, we don't need to have a teleological version of human nature, although you're right, that's, that's precisely how the Greeks got there. We just need a conception of human nature. We just need to agree that there are certain things that are fundamental about being human, human that separate us. Even statistically, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm certainly not talking about essences. essences. I'm a biologist. I don't believe in essences. Uh, but, uh, but even so, statistically speaking, human beings are a particular cluster of, uh, of characteristics that clearly separates us from anything else uh, out there, including our close cousins, right? Um, so I think that all one needs is a statistical clustering version of human nature in order to retain the basic idea behind virtual ethics. Now, that's, that's the first point. The second point, which is related, is, as it turns out, there is empirical research on the so-called virtues. And I actually wrote about this in, my, in one of my blogs, uh, How to Be a Stoic, uh, .org, if people want to check it. And, you, you have um, enough blog, are you sure you have enough blogs, Massimo? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Good grief, how do you keep track of all that? Uh, I'm very well organized. <laughs> but, uh, so there, there's some research within the field, the subfield of psychology, which is often referred to as positive psychology. Uh, which is an interesting field. Uh, you know, it's got its own problems because people try, uh, sometimes push too much. This idea of positive psychology becomes almost uh, sort of a trivial self-help kind of thing. But the basic idea of positive psychology, of course, is that uh, I think it's sound, and it, and it is that psychology, for almost from the beginning, uh, has focused on what happens when it, when something goes wrong with the human mind, and not what happens to normal human beings who are not, in fact, you know, depressed or or don't have you know serious problems. You know, most human beings are not don't, don't fall into the pathology, uh, you know, into psychological pathologies. And so, positive psychology is about figuring out what empirical science can tell of useful to people who are who have normal problems and normal range of problems in normal normal lives. Now, one of the sub sub subtype of research in positive psychology has to do with this idea of the virtues, because positive psychologists talk a lot about eudaimonia. They have adopted the, the, uh, the term from the ancient Greek terminology, so the eudaimonia meaning the, the good life, the life that is worth living, that sort of stuff. And they have actually done comparative uh, cross-cultural research. Where it turns out that basically every society they looked at does have a concept of virtue. And although there are differences locally, there, is, there are some virtues or some definitions of, of specific virtues that pop up in one culture but not in, the, in another, and also there are some kinds of virtues, some types of virtues that are more important, considered more important, more fundamental in some cultures rather than others. Turns out that there is a basic set of, I think it's, an, if I remember correctly, it's about six uh, uh, different virtues, and we can we can link to uh, the essay that I'm talking about so that people can go and check them out. And those six are in fact present in pretty much every society they looked at. Uh, that seems to, to huh. me to suggest that uh, there is, in fact, a common understanding, a common ground, a human, a human flourishing that can work in a, in a pluralistic society, 
with certain adjustments, of course, you know, with with, uh, with the proviso, as as we said, that, that this whole thing doesn't come out of any strong notion of teleology or anything like that. It just comes out of the fact that human beings, evolutionally speaking, happen to have developed a certain kind of needs and, and certain kind of, of basic psychology. So there's those two issues uh, that I think I speak in favor of a resurgence of, of virtual ethics. But there's a third one. I, I like your, your pointing out uh, the, these, these turn toward deontological systems or toward utilitarian system, in other words, toward sort of bottom, uh, top-down uh, ethical systems, essentially, that universalist ethical systems, once we get to large society. Fine. But you also mentioned the law, right? And so the ancients uh, already had a, a fairly large and in fact, culturally diverse society. I'm not talking Roman, about... You know what, the Roman Empire. Exactly. Yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah, talking yeah. about Athens, yeah. but, but rather the Roman Empire, where people were from all over the place. I mean, for instance, you know, as, as you know, I'm into Stoicism, and I often refer to the three major Roman, quote-unquote, Stoics, uh, you know, Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius. None of the three was actually Roman. Uh, Seneca was from Spain, so was Marcus Aurelius, and Epictetus was from Greece, in a part of Greece at the time that now is modern-day Turkey. So none of them actually was Roman. Uh, they were very different from each other. They came from very different backgrounds. So the Romans had to deal with this kind of large, multi-ethnic, multicultural society. And yet, for a millennium, they found a way to actually deal with it uh, in, a, in, in a somewhat positive way. I mean, you know, I don't want to eulogize the, the, the Roman Empire. Right. But that was because partly because the actual law that covered the entire empire was relatively minimalistic. And, this, and, and pretty much they left you pretty much to your own devices. I mean, yeah. unless you were as annoying as my people were. Um, but, uh, exactly. <laughs> your, your people were pretty And really sort of pushed it and the public refused to sort of obey certain public niceties. Um, you were pretty much left to do what you like. I mean, the Persians sort of managed their empire in a similar way. Um, 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 so you really could argue that, in a sense, there were there there, there was a sort of local ethos which you could say was sort of virtue based, but and then there was a superstructure of imperial law that really didn't get into much that we would call moral or ethical, and had to. In other words, the virtues in Rome might be very different from the virtues at the in, in Britannia and the fringes of the of the empire amongst the Celts or whoever it was that they were that they that they were ruling over nominally. Um, um, and so, is that really an example of? Is that really a good analogy for a nation state in which you have a, 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 these diverse populations within a single uh, a country in which um, um, the law isn't just the, the laws can't just be of these minimalistic. You know, we, we, we can't we, we can't allow such enormous differences in ethos between, let's say, I mean, we see in our own country the strain that that causes, right? When you right. have such a fundamentally different ethos, let's say, uh, we're in my part of the country where I live and in the part of the country that you live causes tremendous conflict, right? Sure. Um, no, no. That's, that's absolutely true. Um, but actually, if you don't mind, before we go back there... Uh, we're not going to talk about Trump, I promise, right? <laughs> yeah, that's but right. that's what I was thinking of in terms of right. no, no, a rule of morality maybe as a way to, to try and minimize those kinds of conflicts, right? And say, look, you know, we really can't leave things to local ethos anymore. We're one country, we're one... Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, I don't. It, it's, it would be sort of foolish to say, let's pick the Roman Empire or the Persian Empire or the Chinese Empire, by yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, under, under, in, in the Chinese Empire, that's where we got the development of uh, Confucianism, which is actually a type of virtue ethics. 
itself. Yeah, that's right. It's, that's right. Yeah, it's it's very it's a very similar, in fact, to sort of an Aristotelian approach with different emphasis on on, on on different different aspects of of the human condition. But no, the idea isn't sort of naively to say, well, look at what the Romans did and just translate it into modern society. That would be crazy. Although, if you look at this recent book on the, on the history of Rome, simply entitled SPQR by Mary Beard, who is a, a prominent uh, international scholar of ancient Rome, uh, she wrote this book explicitly because she thinks that there are actually a number of lessons that we can still get uh, from the Roman Empire and, and sort of that might make us think in a more creative and more interesting way about our own problems. She says very interestingly, for instance, uh, you know, the, that often people write about the Roman Empire in terms of, let's say, you know, the, its military might, right? As if modern generals could somehow take a, a page from the rule book of Julius Caesar. And she says, that's just crazy because the conditions, you know, the, the technology has changed so much and, and the conditions on the ground are, are so different that it would be really silly for a modern general to say, well, let me study what Alexander the Great or what Julius Caesar were actually doing and, and try to replicate it. But she said, on the other hand, the human needs the demographic uh, uh, variability and pressures, the economic pressures and all that sort of stuff that the Romans had to deal with are actually not that different from the ones that we deal with in a multicultural, increasingly multinational society. So I, I still think that there is quite a bit to be learned from it. Um, but my basic point was simply that the ancient Romans, who, by the way, uh, established the kind of law that we that is in fact at the basis of much modern legislation. You know, much the modern concept of law is in fact directly derived from Roman from the Roman concept of law. So you're right. You, we want to be more specific and all that, but I don't think that we that there is a, a contradiction between saying, look, we need some kind of you know universal laws, and they will have to be as specific or as uh, permissive or non-permissive as we decide them to be at a societal level, that's fine. But those are laws. Those are not morality. Uh, you know, those are not moral yeah. systems. Yeah. Of course, there, is, there better be a relationship between our moral uh, intuitions and, and, and our laws. But those are laws. Laws are supposed to sort of constrain and, and direct, in a broad sense, uh, people's behaviors. They're not supposed to tell them or to teach them what is right and what is wrong. And so I still think that a model, a dual model, very similar to the ones that the Romans had, that is, there's the law that is equal for everybody and it's, you know, structured in whatever way it, the, the society wants to structure and thinks that it's, it's appropriate and, and useful to structure on the one hand. And then there is ethics as in a bottom-up kind of phenomenon, as in we're going to teach our kids both in, our, in families and at school about moral development. I mean, you know, one of the things that we've given, given up in modern education is the idea of moral education. We don't do that. Uh, you know, the, 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 it would be unthinkable to, to, to send your kids to school and say, have them, you know, uh, uh, follow a course in sort of virtual ethics or in character building or something like that. But I actually do think that that would be a, a move in the right direction. Yeah, be careful what you wish for. They actually did start, I mean, they have it around here, maybe not in New York, but they, have, they had this thing in middle school called character ed right. that I actually I really cringed at when I saw what was sort of in it. It, it seemed to me primarily an exercise in creating obedient people. Yes, um, it depends um, on how it's done. Right. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. But every good idea, there is a bad version of it, so it does depend on it. But before I forget it, I actually want yeah. to mention, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I, I actually found out very recently about this. You mentioned your people and how troublesome they were for the Romans, right? right. So. 
the Romans, uh, and in particular the Emperor Vespasian, was the were the ones that had finally lost their, lost patience with the Jews and just destroyed the temple. Right. Uh, the, the Jewish revolt failed, uh, and it was it, it did originate from this idea that the, the Jewish people, unlike every everybody else, basically in the Roman Empire, refused to. Uh, um, Accept the Roman model of you worship whoever the hell you want, but you also worship in yeah. public. You pay the you pay the respects that everybody is expected to pay. Right. Yeah. So there was this really bloody war that that uh, was long and 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 hard fought. Eventually, uh, the Romans did squish the the you know the, suppress the, the the Jewish rebellion, and they destroyed the temple, which is in fact what started the diaspora. Now yes. the interesting thing is. Uh, uh, Titian, I think it was uh, the, uh, the son of Vespasian. Uh, was the one that actually, as a general, uh, uh, sort of finished the campaign. And so he looted the temple and brought back the treasury the, the treasure to Rome. Guess what they did with it? They built the Colosseum. I had no idea that the Colosseum... Which I did is actually, not know that. Right. The official name of the Colosseum is actually the uh, um, uh, Flavian Amphitheater because it was done by the Flavian family, by Vespasian... And, 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 his, uh, and his son, uh, it was built with money taken from the Jewish temple. <laughs> so I am a part owner of the... Uh, so, That's so right. Just like, I can, just like I can go to the Swiss banker and say, can I have my, gold, my grandfather's gold teeth back? I can go to Rome and say, I want my, I want my share. <laughs> at, the, at the very least, you should have a lifelong free ticket to the, to the Coliseum. <laughs> um, so, so it sounds to me like you're suggesting that you think it was a mistake to try and it's one thing to have sort of a, a, a universal a, a universal law and to try and homogenize a sort of a set of rules for a large population. You think it was a mistake, even with the rise of nation states, to try and do the same with morals, right. which gives the impression that you think that a, a certain level of kind of uh, ethical heterogeneity, heterogeneity is a good thing. Um, um, but then on the other hand, I want to go back to this business about, about, about the absence of uh, a teleological view of human nature. Um, on the other hand, though, it just sounds to me like you're saying, but there are these sort of universal facts about human nature about which you could produce a set of virtues that would apply whether you live in Missouri or New York or Polynesia or a jungle in the middle of Indonesia or right. somewhere and and. And I'm wondering, how, where does the diversity then come in? Right. No, that's an excellent question. Um, I think that diversity, that tension that you correctly, I think, described, is the result of the fact that there are some high-level virtues and then there is a lot of specific, uh, more specific uh, sort of uh, aspects to the so-called virtues. Uh, so at a very high level, I think most people, and the empirical evidence seems to, as I said, seems to back this up. Most people do admire, let's say, things like courage, and I, I don't mean just physical courage, but moral courage. You know, the, the courage to stand up for the right, for whatever right, whatever beliefs you have, you think that they're right. Yeah, yeah. But the, the courage to stand up for them, and that's actually a good example. You may be standing up for very different kinds of beliefs. And I may disagree with some of your beliefs, but I may still admire the fact that you are coherent and that you're courageous and, you know, you fight for, for them. Um, you know, we, have, we all appreciate, I think that universally we appreciate honesty. You know, we don't, we don't like people that lie. We don't like people that steal. We don't like people that, that um, take advantage of other people, that sort of stuff. So there are some high-level principles that do seem to be pretty much universal. And frankly, those are the same principles 
that seem to apply to other uh, social uh, primates. Obviously, they wouldn't describe them as principles because they don't have philosophy and they don't. They don't. They don't so, when we look at, let's say, the behavior of bonobos and chimpanzees, right. we see a similar. You're yeah. saying we see a similar set of let's call them fundamental values, values or virtues or yeah, something like that. Yeah, right? yeah, so, yeah. so, the bonobos, for instance, pretty clearly are courageous. Uh, you know, uh, they 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 actually risk physical injury in order to try to address uh, an unfair behavior. From within their their tribe, so those kind of things are actually found pretty much universally in human societies. Then, of course, there are more specific things uh, on which we we can disagree, and that leads to the model of what you say, sort of a, a, a variety of different kinds of virtue ethics, which I actually think, really empirically, is what we have. I mean, when I you know I live in New York, uh, where I can go to a Christian church and listen to a, a particular version. Uh, we've had many particular versions because the different Christian churches have different emphasis right. on what is, you know, how what is a good character, what is a good person. And then I go to the to the synagogue and I get a different version. And I go to a mosque, I get a different version. I got a Buddhist temple and got, I get a different version. And now I go I go to a Stoic school, which I just studied at the Society for Ethical Culture, and you get yet another version. That was true also in ancient time, right? I mean, so so the Hellenistic period was interesting precisely because you could basically go around and shop for your vir version of virtue ethics. Do you feel like the Stoics got it right, or the Epicureans, or the, or the skeptics, you know, wh whatever. But they were all vying for, uh, for, for customers, so to speak, you know, against, against each other. But at the same time, they were all functioning within the, the same pluralist society, regulated by the same high-level laws. So, yeah, I think it is, I'm not, I'm definitely not saying that a single model of virtual ethics should be imposed because that would, that would, I think, be catastrophic. Um, what it, we should do is to, on the one hand, agree that at a high level, we seem to have pretty much with, to agree with the general, to the general principles. We, we like people to be fair and honest and so but on. But there are fundamental goods, but these under really underdetermined specific, Correct. the specific virtues that we might want right. to, we might want to speak to. Um, let me just ask you one more thing about this, um, um, and then I think I think we'll have, have, have treated the subject pretty well. Um, you're the last person who wants to be compared to Sam Harris, <laughs> yeah. but oh, something about the way you're characterizing this sounds to me a little bit like his claim that one can read values off of nature. Um, um, the, the notion that well, science tells us that. There are these universal, you know, wherever you go, that these pe people have these basic, um, uh, these basic needs and, and wants and desires that 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 have to be fulfilled, and that we can use this as the as instead of we we don't have to have a teleological view of human nature like Aristotle had. All we need are these facts about human nature that now modern science tells us, and I right. assume it's a combination of biology with anthropological uh, investigation, um, and. I guess that one of the things I wonder about then is when we speak of human flourishing or excellence, which is what we, which is the sort of the, the idiom that we use when we talk in virtue theoretical language, um, we can't really be meaning the same thing by it as Aristotle meant by it. In other words, I wonder whether the, the, the notion of value that one winds up with is essentially deflationary, right? Relative right. to the sort that you had in Aristotle. Because otherwise... I thought that precisely what was wrong with Harris was that he thought you could get 
a thick notion of value out of nothing but an empirical description of human nature. Right. And it sounded to me like you were saying that for a while, but I'm wondering whether really what you're saying is we can get something, but it, it isn't what Aristotle had. Virtues right. aren't what Aristotle thought they were, and human flourishing isn't quite what Aristotle... It's, it's, what we have is a deflated version, a deflationary version of that. Yes, I think you're right. It is a deflationary version, what, what I'm su suggesting. But basically what I'm saying is, and, and in fact the key is into, into that um, uh, sort of underdetermination that you were pointing out earlier, right? So, look, I'm a naturalist, so I do think that, that there has to be a connection. I don't see any other way around it between uh, ethics and human nature. I mean, ethics to me, you know, ethical systems, ethical concepts are ways to for human beings to get along with each other and flourish. Uh, and of course, they're going to be constrained by biological parameters, by cultural parameters, by psychological parameters, right? But they're not going to be determined by those parameters. You can't just read off, you, know, you can't just do a brain scan of somebody and read off the values uh, and say, those are universal, those apply to everybody. Precisely because there is, there is this variety, there is this underdetermination of, of specific values. So I, what, I, what I'm proposing is that at a very large, at a very high level, we do have a naturalistic account of ethics. And that is, ethics is simply whatever uh, set of, of behaviors and rules we come up with to uh, live harmoniously in a society and to allow individuals to flourish within that society. But what that means then in practice on the ground varies culturally, varies with time. Uh, it may have an emphasis in one direction in one culture in one time and another emphasis in another direction in, uh, uh, in another time. So um, that's, that's, I think, what doesn't make it a uh, sort of a universal. That's why I think universalist projects are bound to fail. So and, in, and a sense, in a sense, contemporary virtue ethics is a version of naturalistic ethics. Yes, um, right. Whereas Aristotle's was indeed was a very metaphysical. All the ancient Greek were metaphysical ethics, and yeah. maybe the mistake that Ar Harris makes is really that he thinks you can get something like a metaphysical ethics out of nothing but a naturalistic account. That's right. In other words, he, his mistake isn't turning to human nature. His mistake is in not realizing that the picture of ethics that comes out of it is deflationary relative to the traditional conception of, of, of ethics and, and, and of morality. Would you say that that's fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. You don't, you don't just read utilitarianism uh, of, of scientific facts about the human, the human mind or, or human right. behavior. That's, that's right. That's which right. is what he wants to do, which is what, he, what, he, what he's trying to do. Uh, so there's a lot more variation. There's a lot more leeway than, than Harris would, uh, yeah. would agree yeah. with. Yeah, and, yes, I think you're right. It is it is a naturalistic and yet deflationary account of ethics. And I think that it really shows tremendous wisdom and foresight on the part of Elizabeth Anscombe, um, um, if, if, who really more than I, if, if you want to really give credit to the resurgence of virtue ethics, it doesn't go to McIntyre. Um, right. It goes to Anscombe, who wrote this paper, Modern Moral Philosophy, in the 1950s. Yes. Um, and... Um, one of the things she said is that she, th she thought we really need to drop all talk about morality until we have a sufficient psychology. And right. in a sense, that sounds a lot like what you're saying now. And that is, and that, is that, that we had an old picture that was based on a whole sorts of frameworks that we no longer can accept. Exactly. And the new picture has to be grounded in human nature. 
right? right? But which means we have to have a conception of it, right? Right. And maybe part and that, of it, <laughs> yeah, go on. And, and I would add that that conception cannot be essentialist because right. that one is dropped out of the picture as well. It is inherently evolutionary and statistical. That's right. Which means that inherently it will be uh, a, a variable concept. There will right. be a lot of variability there. There will be a yeah. lot of, of different, it's, and therefore a lot of underdetermination, yeah. which is why my, my sort of ideal society, so to speak, is a society where there are in fact these, these uh, general laws that sort of regulate behaviors in large groups of humans, but there is also this continuous competition between different kinds of virtual ethical uh, frameworks and just let people uh, go with whatever works better for them as a frame because virtual ethics remember isn't a universalist kind of approach is a personal kind of approach is is you know you are a stoic or an epicurean or an Aristotelian because or a christian or a whatever it is or a buddhist because it works for you yeah and there's no claim there that it ought to to work for everybody but if they didn't if what they took as working didn't fit into a very fundamental basic picture of human needs and desires, they would not really be viable, right? I mean, right. I, mean, I, right. mean I mean, and the ones that don't, the ones that are truly extreme, they don't survive, right? I mean, they, That's right. they, they die That's out. Right. Um, yeah, I don't um, think there is such a thing as Nazi virtual ethics. For right, exactly. I, I mean, or, or these cults and these sort of things that really sort of stretch to the point of the breaking point, what yes. the human template. Um, I guess this, the last thing I would wonder is, you know, and, and I, I, I'm really seeing this now. And, and you know, Anscombe, of course, was was a theist and was religious, um, but she was such a good philosopher and so smart that she was able to see that um, you know you could have a modern virtue ethic if you had a modern picture of human nature, right? Um, I guess the last thing I would then want to ask is, do you really think that our current psychology and anthropology is is at a point at which we have a sufficient picture of human nature upon which to base a modern virtue ethic, or are we still in the embryonic stages of, 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 of a picture? That's a good question. Um, I think we're still at the early stages. I'm not sure that I would call them embryonic, but we're certainly at the early stages. Um, but I also do think that we have, and have had actually for, for some time, enough information to justify you know, the viability of virtual ethical approach. As a framework, yeah, yeah. As yeah. a framework, yes. And then which ones are going to work better than others? Quite frankly, it might not even depend, you know, I don't, I don't expect psychologists to come in any day and say, oh, hey, uh, it turns out that empirically speaking, you know, a stoic works better than an Epicurean or something like that. <laughs> right. Uh, because, it's never going to be yeah, that specific. Right, because um, there is too much variability. But you know, do, do you, are you confident that we have the fundamental values down or do you still think that our psychology and our anthropology is still a bit it's still a bit too soon to tell whether we, we whether that's been set yet i think we have had this the basic concepts down for two thousand years oh um, i see but but i think that those came originally from simple intuitions and and observations of you know raw observations of human behavior and then now we're beginning to have more quantitative assessments more specific systematic assessments but i actually think that the that's one of the the, the, the biggest things that I, I keep being astonished is how much they got right without the science yes exactly yeah and yeah. it's not surprising i mean frankly you know i, I don't want to mention the stoics too often but those well, are that's the ones fine that's fine yeah no, but it, that's the reason is that I do is because I, those are the ones that I'm more familiar with in terms of details, right? So the Stoics, as we talked about in the past, had uh, developed a, a large, broad system of logic and a broad system of what they call physics, which was natural science in general, and also then a broad system of ethics, 
of the three, the one that actually has survived pretty much intact is the ethics. Right. You know, our logic has gone way beyond, uh, and our epistemology and our sort of common science has gone way beyond what the, the Stoics did. And it, we know that... And obviously Stoics our cosmology got, has gone way beyond what this Right. Stuff, right? Our <laughs> cosmology, our yeah. metaphysics, our physics, our biology, all of those got way beyond. And in fact, we know that the Stoics were definitely wrong about some of those, you know, a lot of the specifics, and, and clearly they had no idea of some of the stuff that we've discovered in the last 2,000 years. But in terms of ethics, you know, you, you, you pick up Epictetus and he's talking to a 21st century person just like he was talking to a 1st yeah. century person. Yeah. And that, I think, is what astonishes me, not just of the Stoics, but all of the Hellenistic philosophers. Is just how much, and, and if you want to go outside of the Western world, how much is astonishing about Buddhism or how much is astonishing about Confucianism, which are both, or Taoism, all of those are traditions that are still alive today. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so I guess your book, your book, which is coming out, which, you know, we can't plug enough, is your, the book, your dialogues, um, discuss, it's you talking with Epictetus, is it not? Right, right. And were you struck in writing it how not dated and contemporary the conversation seemed? In other words, that you didn't feel like you were talking with somebody yeah, it felt like I was talking to a buddy that I, you know. I just, that's incredible. That's incredible. Right. I really look forward to reading that. I really, and when is that coming? When do you? When, when is the re realistic time. date? I think we, I think it, the the release date is May nine. Although people can go and and uh, and um, pre-purchase. Oh, it. is it pre-orderable now? Yeah, it's pre-orderable already. Yes. Awesome, Massimo. This was really enjoyable. Uh, it was fun. And one of some directions I didn't expect, which is always the best kind of conversation. Right. Um, and uh, I look forward to our next uh, our next discussion. Absolutely. All right. Take care, care, my friend. Thanks for listening to Meaning of Life TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.